Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 11 again. Last week, we looked at who is the devil. This week, we're going to look at, begin looking at uh, what his schemes are like. But for the sake of context, let me, uh, let me read down through verse 12. So Ephesians chapter 6, beginning of verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Father, I pray that You would open this text up to us, that You would open our hearts to not only know Your Word, but be submissive to it, that You would uh, be changing us at a heart level. And Father, for anyone who doesn't yet know Christ savingly, that this morning you might be pleased to draw them to yourself. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Most of you are probably familiar with Peter's denial of Christ. And I want to begin this morning by just reading uh, to you from Luke chapter 22, uh, beginning in verse 31, and help you see the state of uh, Peter's mind and heart. So Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And if Peter was in his right mind, I'm just going to pause here for a moment. Peter would say, thank you, Jesus. If I had to face Satan in and of myself, I would be destroyed. Thank you for praying for me that I might be preserved. But that's not what Peter says. Peter says, Lord, I am ready. I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Essentially, Peter says, don't waste your prayers on me. You might need to pray for some of them, but I am ready. I'm ready for the extreme. I'll go to prison, and they can even kill me, but I am ready. Matthew 26, 40, 
tells us what happens moments later in the Garden of Gethsemane. We read, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, so you cannot watch with me for one hour? And he's ready to go to prison and die. And he says, you can't watch with me for one hour? And then he says, watch and pray. He doesn't say watch and pray for those soldiers so they don't spook us when they come into the garden. That's not what he says. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. But Peter's heart hasn't changed, has it? And he goes right back to sleep. Jesus knows the strength of the enemy. Peter doesn't. Peter is relying on his own strength and his own wisdom. He's overestimated his own strength and underestimated the enemy's strength. And so Peter fell to the schemes of the devil in that moment. And the net result was he was separated from Christ, at least temporarily. Satan, the tempter, the enemy, was too much for Peter in and of himself. We know Peter repents and is restored. Why? Because Peter's so great? No, because Jesus prayed for him. That's why. Jesus didn't pray for Judas that way, did he? What did he say? He says, you go do, you go do your, what you're going to do. But he prayed for Peter. In war, deception is key. This is why soldiers wear camouflage, right? If anyone's ever been a soldier and you're at war, one of the main things you're thinking of is where is the enemy? Where is he hiding? If your enemy just looks like civilians and you're in a civilian territory, well, the camouflage is they look just normal. And the threat is you can't see the enemy. You don't know where it's coming from, where the attack is coming from. You know, now they have these thermal imaging at night where the armies that have advanced technology can make the enemy just glow. Kind of like putting blaze orange on the enemy. Well, that's the goal of this sermon this morning. That you're able to see by going to God's Word, by learning about Satan and his schemes in the Bible, that you're able to see them so you're not deceived by him and destroyed by him. All right? Very practical thing we're doing this morning. The goal is to see the schemes more clearly, to be recognized, to recognize them. Because he comes in camouflage as an angel of light. Right? 
you're probably don't see clearly how you're being attacked. In fact, the deception can be so great that an area you might think is one of your strengths might be the very place where the devil is deceiving you. And so, uh, this morning, the goal is to see the enemy more clearly, to know the schemes of the devil. Now, just remembering who the devil is, last week we never got to point uh, C, the, the last point. Who is the devil? We talked about he's a spiritual being, supernatural spiritual being. He's an angel. He's fallen. He's rebelled against God. And the point we didn't get to is he's the prince of demons. He's the God of this world. Hell is described by Jesus as a place prepared for the devil and his angels. And so, this morning, we're going to look at the schemes of the devil. In John 8.44, before we jump right into it, we just want to have the devil in mind. What is he like? What does he do? He's speaking to the Pharisees. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Here's what he's like. He was a murderer from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of of lies. All right? So who is Satan? He's a murderer. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. And he works through lies. We're going to add one more term to describe how he functions. He functions as a tempter. Murderer, liar, tempter. This is what he's like. We wouldn't know this unless the Bible told us. God is the one that helps us see the enemy through his word, putting on the armor of God. Part of that is reconnaissance, being able to understand him. So the goal is to know that Satan is the God of this world and the father of death. All right? And his goal is to manipulate you through the system of this world. All right, that'll be point one in your notes. I'm just going to tell you, you're going to get this same sheet next week. Lord willing. And we're going to get through point one uh, under Roman numeral two today. Okay? And so, we'll finish this out next week. But his goal is to manipulate you through the system of the world. Paul's already taught us in Ephesians chapter 2 about Satan and about the world system that he runs. 
In Ephesians 2, verse 1, he says this. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So before a person's saved, that person is deceived into following the course of this world. It's as if Satan's playing the song and every lost person is just dancing to the beat, marching towards destruction, and they don't know it. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan is described as the prince of the demonic forces that are at play over all the geopolitics of the entire world, over all the cultures of the world. Because we don't struggle against flesh and blood, that politician isn't the fundamental problem or that king, or that president isn't the fundamental problem. For that king and that president, outside of Christ, are being manipulated by Satan and his demons for his own ends. He tells us in verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that word, the spirit, has this idea of it's, it's like a mood. That this satanic system, this world is like a mood. A satanic mood and deception that is on those who know not Christ. John Stott, in 1979, the year I was born, this quote is aged well. But listen what he says about this. He describes us as following the course of this world. This is, this is John Stott. The Greek phrase is according to the age of this world. It brings together two concepts of this evil age and darkness in contrast to the age to come which Jesus introduced and this world. The society organized without reference to God or as we might say secularism in contrast to God's kingdom which is His new society under His new rule. So both words, age and world, express a whole social value system which is alien to God. It permeates, indeed dominates, non-Christian society and holds people in captivity. Wherever human beings are being dehumanized by political oppression, our bureaucratic tyranny, by an outlook that is secular, reputing God, or amoral, reputing absolutes, or materialistic, glorifying the consumer market, by poverty, hunger, or unemployment, by racial discrimination, or by any form of injustice, there we can detect 
the subhuman values of this age or this world. Their influence is pervasive. People tend not to have a mind of their own, but to surrender under the pop culture of television and the glossy magazines. It is a cultural bondage. We were all the same until Jesus liberated us. And then he quotes uh, J.B. Phillips. We drifted along the stream of this world's ideas of living. And then Stott goes on. Since Scripture identifies the devil not only as the source of temptations to sin, but also as a lion and a murderer, we may safely, safely trace all evil air and violence back to him in the end. When he and the mood he inspires are said to be at work in human beings, the verb energo, where we get the word energy, is the same that is used of God's power in 120, which raised Jesus from the dead. Only that divine energy or action could ever have rescued us from the devil. So what Stott is saying is culture, political systems, both sides, the unregenerate world, the unsaved world, they don't just have a mind of their own. They're being manipulated through the system of the world. My little niece that goes to a Christian school in Sioux Falls has a friend group of girls and they began dating each other. How does that happen? I don't know. I have a guess. TikTok, media, social media. How did these ideas get presented as good? How do they brainwash our children. What gets put into their minds is the deception that holds. So the issue to be thinking about is where are you getting your information? What are you thinking about? Where are you getting your ideas from? Do you actually believe in a supernatural world? Or do we just live in a world of stuff? Do you believe that Satan is the prince of the power of the air? Do you believe that your battle and your relationships isn't fundamentally against the flesh, but against Satan and other fallen spiritual beings? As we think about this world... We could summarize it the way John does in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. He says three things. This, this has been helpful for me. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Let me just preface it with this. God created the world, all right? This is his world. That is true. The trees, the mountains, God created those things. That is good. He actually created, a, created those things for us to enjoy 
But the type of the, a world John is talking about is this system that is being dominated and perverted by Satan. All right? So he says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and he says three things. Here's how he summarizes the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. Other translations might say lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Here's how you sum up this world's system. Lust of the flesh. Whatever fleshly desires you have, just feed it. Now God gave us appetites. And they're good. He gave us sexual appetites. He gave us appetites for food. He gave us appetites that help us live, but they can be distorted. We can commit the sin of gluttony with our appetites, our sexual immorality with our appetites, or we could go into debt as we have an appetite for stuff and sinfully spend money, right? So one of the ways Satan's going to come after you is in your flesh. Tempt you in your flesh. And then he says, lust of the eyes, coveting. How much time do you sit there looking at what you don't have? And rather being satisfied and thankful, you find your heart always looking for more. So coveting. And then the pride of life. Where's your status? How do you stand up in society in your friend group? If you want to know what the world system is, it's that. That's what's going on. Lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes. Status. Pride of life. Second Corinthians 4.4 Paul says, those who aren't trusting Christ, he says in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is described as the God of this world, lowercase g. And if you're going to understand his schemes, you've got to know that one of his fundamental ways of deceiving you is through the world system through what's normal. All right, children, listen to me. You're going to grow up and the thought's going to come into your head. Man, there's not very many people that believe like we believe. Your family's weird. Your family's not normal. Look at What's normal? You know, I'm on TikTok. I see what's normal. My parents, they're mean. They think homosexuality is bad. You know? You're going to be confronted with the world system and you're going to have a choice to make. Whether you're going to believe what God says or what the world says. 
And if you go with what God says, God says you're going to be in the minority. The road to hell is wide that leads to destruction. And many who follow it, and those who follow it, are many. And the road is narrow that leads to life. And those who find it are few. That's what Jesus said. So we need to know that Satan is the God of this world and he'll manipulate you through his deceptive world system. Secondly, he's also the father of death. Know that Satan wants to bring death into your life. Now here's a question maybe you haven't thought of. If someone says, what is, what is the meaning of death? What is death? Well, here's what death is. Death is separation. You want to know what physical death is? That's where your soul and your spirit get separated from your physical body. You want to know what spiritual death is? That's where your soul gets separated from all the goodness and blessing of God for all eternity in hell. The Bible talks about two deaths. Dying physically and then the second death, which would be separation from God. So if Satan has been a murderer from the beginning, that means he's been a divider from the beginning. His ministry is to separate you from God and you from neighbor. If what God wants in our life is that we love Him and we love our neighbor, and the whole law can be summed up in that, then the devil's scheme is to get you to not love God, to separate you from God, and to separate you from your neighbor. So when you think about how is the enemy working in my life, one of the things you need to look for is separation. How is he manipulating separation in your hearts and in your minds? You know, as you, as you came here today, were you, did you come seeing the enemy? Or did you come just thinking things were pretty good? Just pretty clear and good. How could that be? If that's the way you thought, and that's the way you think about your life, you might think you're good because maybe you're no threat to Satan in his kingdom of death. Or maybe you haven't been aware of what God or, or what He is doing, and you're, you're blinded to see how He's working in your life. So this morning we're going to look at how Satan's goal is to separate you from God. Next week we'll look at how his goal is to separate us from man. And then we'll look at how his goal is to separate you from your body He really wants you dead physically. 
If you've ever heard that voice in your head that says, what's the point? You would be better off dead. You're harming people. You need to know where that voice is coming from. You need to understand the lie. So that's what we're going to look at next week, and then we'll look at how He wants to separate us from our spiritual body, from one another in the church. So let's look this morning, the rest of our time, His goal to separate you from God. Now, I didn't leave you much room, but I actually have 12 points here. And uh, we're going to run through them pretty rapid. But this is prac- these, these are just practical. Just giving you eyes to see better how the enemy might be working against you and you haven't maybe been aware of it. All right? Here's one of his main tactics. Look at the circumstances of your life. Ha! You really think God is good? You really think God's in control in light of the circumstances in your life right now? Tactic number one is, you really think God is good, huh? You know, Satan's subtle. He's more crafty than any other beast of the field. We, we read in Genesis 3. He came to Adam and Eve with questions. All right, this is a powerful attack, and you've probably all felt it. And here's why it's powerful. He, he shows up and he points to facts. Did your mom die or not? Did she suffer terribly or not? Did your friend betray you or not? Did your boss treat you unfairly or not? Did you not pray a thousand prayers and God didn't listen to you or not? The reason why it's powerful is facts are brought to the table. And another reason why it's powerful is he takes advantage of your pain and he takes advantage of your emotions in that moment. Are you not angry right now? Are you not devastated right now? Aren't you at the end of your rope where you can't take this anymore? He looks at your emotions. He looks at your pain in light of the difficult circumstances and says, ha, ha. oh, you're going to be that gullible and think God's good. <laughs> oh, how much evidence do you need? See? If God was good, He wouldn't make you suffer like this. I mean, He might make you suffer a little bit, but this long? How many things need to go wrong? This is just cruel at this point. This is the voice of Satan. Let me tell you what God's Word says. 1 Peter 5.5 5. Clothe yourself with all humility. Or clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He might exalt you. This is key. Casting your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. He knows you have problems. He knows you have fears. He knows you have anxieties. Jesus never promised before He returns you were going to have an easy life. He never promised easy circumstances. He never promised a life that that you're not going to be tempted to anxiety. But here's what He says, cast those anxieties on Him for He cares for you. The enemy says He doesn't. God says He does. Now listen to this. Casting your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Sounds like Jesus here. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing. Now, what does he want you to know? Knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not unique. All the brothers are living in a fallen world. All the brothers have difficult circumstances. And the devil's plan to destroy you is in the lie that God's forgotten you. He doesn't care for you. Look at your circumstances. This is the first thing he's going to say. God's not good. The second thing is this. Doesn't prayer seem pointless? Doesn't prayer seem pointless? When are you just going to give it up? How many times do you need to be disappointed before you just quit praying? You see, He wants you separated from God. He wants you separated from Him. He knows that those who know your name put their trust in you. He doesn't want you to know His name. He doesn't want you to know that He cares about you. Is it really worth praying anymore? What does God's Word say? Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Oh, really? In light of all this suffering, you want me to rejoice always? Let's be reasonable, Paul. Well, this is what Paul says next. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. Rejoicing always in every circumstance is reasonable. Here's why. The Lord is at hand is what he says. On on the day of your biggest suffering and your biggest temptation and struggle, the Lord is with you. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for I am with you. My rod and my staff, they comfort you. I think I got the tenses wrong there. But the point is, on your toughest day, in the worst circumstances, God says rejoice. Why? Because the greatest thing you have, which is nearness and closeness to God, can never be taken away from you. He says to pray continually. He wants to hear from you. 
He wants you to know that He's near. And then He says this in Philippians 4. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So God's Word says, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. And if you do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will be upon you. You won't be able to explain it. And the devil hates that. He doesn't want you to pray when you're anxious. He wants you to drink. He wants you to go spend money you don't have. He wants you to waste your time away. Forget about your problems. Drown drown them away by scrolling. He doesn't want you to pray. Because He knows if you pray and you turn to Him, even if your circumstances don't change, peace will come upon you. And if you have peace, now you're hard to tempt. Third, Is reading God's Word today really the top priority? Really? You know how busy a day you got today? You're good. You've already hidden God's Word in your heart. Skip today. Skip today. You know, I've watched some of these YouTube videos about what do you do if someone comes to rob you, puts a gun in your chest? think they might shoot you and you have all this stuff you can do to grab the barrel chop the wrist flip the gun around you're pointing it at them you see satan wants to face you with no sword he wants to de-arm you usually all he has to do is convince you you're too busy you're too busy really Top priority today to get into God's Word, to put on the armor of God? Of course, this is one of his tactics. Fourth, you ought to be afraid. I'd be afraid if I were you. God obviously is not near. We've already kind of talked about this one. Let me just give you some text. Luke 2.10, the angel said to them, Do not or fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And what's the good news? The good news is, is God is here in the flesh. Fear not. Matthew 10.31, Fear not, therefore, are you... Are you are you are of more value than many sparrows. Don't you know that I'm here and I care about you? Or Luke 12, 7. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not. Are you of not a much more value than sparrows? Or John 2, 15. Fear not, O daughters of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. The Messiah is here. In Revelation 1.17, 
says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not. I am the first and the last. You see, Satan wants you fearing. 1 John 4 says this, there is no fear in love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. You see, if you know Jesus Christ is the first and the last, and He's the sovereign God of the universe, and He's the one that died for you and shed His own blood for you, and He promises to work all things together for your good, the good things and the bad things, if the devil comes and points to your sin and says, what hope do you have before God? But Jesus died for your sins, and you realize there is now therefore no condemnation in Christ, that's when you know you're perfected in love. But the devil's going to come as a tempter. You better be afraid. You really think God's for you? You really think He's here with you? Number five. This is one of his favorites. He basically comes and says, look over there. Look over here. It's the deception of distraction. He doesn't have to come with us with propositions that are just contrary to God. He just has to get us busy, get us distracted, and often with maybe good things. You know, I think of the parable of the soils, the third soil that gets choked out by the weeds. Jesus says, the others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things, there's that coveting, enter in and choke out, choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Just get you distracted. Just get you busy. I mean, you got to provide for your family, don't you? Have you ever had a good intention to read your Bible and your 20 minutes goes by and it's like, how did, how did that 20 minutes get stolen away? I got on this and then I got on this and I read this email and I did this and I did this. Just... You realize the reason why it's much easier to read an article in a magazine or watch a news report rather than listen to a sermon or read your Bible is because it's a spiritual battle, right? The devil's just going to come to you and he might say, well, it's just because you're not saved. No. For those who are saved, you're going to have an attack to keep you out of the Word. He wants to disarm you all the time. He wants to separate you from God. As you read God's Word and believe it by faith, you and God are close. You're united with one another. So, distraction. I mean, I saw, I saw a picture on the internet. Sometimes it's not 
right there. I was probably distracted in the moment, but it was a picture of a bunch of people on a beach in 1970, probably. And they said, what do you notice about this? Everyone's talking to each other face to face. Everyone's talking to each other face to face. Now, one person had sunglasses on. So they were not only talking to each other, but they were looking each other in the eye. And I just thought, look at the world system today. Just go to Twiscombe. Pull up. Do a sociology experiment. And watch the communication taking place. Here's what it's going to look like. You're going to have a group of Six people that are all friends, and they're all doing this. Right? Distraction. How do you not love your neighbor? You just ignore that they're there because you're distracted. It's not like you've got a bad heart. Right? All right. So here's another one. The grass is greener on the other side. This is the never-ending highway, Right? You just got to go a little further, then you're going to be satisfied. Then you're going to find what you're looking for. Well, yeah, you thought you were going to get it here, but then this happened. Really, you're going to get it here. Just go a little further, and then you'll find peace. Then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll quit ignoring your family and your wife and your children. Just go a little further down the road. This steals thanksgiving that we're to have. One of the ways we glorify God is through thanksgiving. Oh boy. Rebellion is good. Okay, you're going to get these rapid fire now. Rebellion is freedom. It's one of his favorite lies. Oh, aren't you tired? You get on the internet and read about how evil these Christians are. They just want to hold you in abusive uh, situations and they, they, they want to oppress you and, and brainwash you. What you need is you need to be set free. You need to reconstruct your Jesus to be much more free, right? All right, then there's bait and switch. Oh, you really want this. You got to have this. So then you fall to the temptation and then he says, you really think God's going to forgive you? Really? How many times are you going to do this? You think God's going to forgive you that many times? He tempts you, and then He turns on you. The next one is God could never forgive you. God could never forgive you. He's described, Satan's described as the accuser of the... Brethren, he accuses them day and night before our God, Revelation 12.10. Here's another one a lot like that. Do you see your sin? How can you be saved? I mean, I know everyone sins, but you really think you can sin that much and be saved? And so this one twists the gospel a little bit. You see... You're either saved by faith 
in Christ where His perfect righteousness, His perfect life is imputed into your life, or you're saved by being good enough. And if He can get you looking at your fruit and evaluating, saying, is this enough fruit for a saved person? He's just turned the gospel into law. Now it is true that there's some fruit. But as John Piper says, does it really ever get better than C minus fruit before Christ returns? So, number 11. Do you see how much better your righteousness is compared to others? One person you'll go after and say, God can never forgive you. The next person, he turns the gospel into pietism. The way you know you've been attacked in this way is if your coming to Christ is defined more by a new list of rules rather than a new love, then you can know that you're being deceived. If the tendency of your life tends towards suspicion and comparison and slander and gossip and self-righteousness and anger, then you can be sure that the deception of the evil one is influencing you. And this one's so tricky because the person's actually convinced of their righteousness. Their list of rules is longer than everyone else. And number 12, this is, this is really the Christ over here. You know, we're warned by Jesus in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, or so to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Yeah, you need to follow Jesus, but you need to follow this Jesus. A Jesus different than the one described in the Scripture. Now all of that, the summation of all of that is what? To separate you from God. He wants to murder you spiritually forever in hell. He wants you dead physically He wants you dead spiritually. And He comes with all those lies. Now I want to end like this. I know we're long, but I I still want to end. John 17, 14. When Jesus prays His last prayer with His disciples, what does He pray? He says, I've given them Your Word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. You might underestimate Satan. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't underestimate, but he prayed that you be kept from the evil one. How about when he taught the disciples to pray? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. I want to 
close by going back to Ephesians 2, remembering what Christ did for us. If Satan came to separate, Christ came to put back together. Christ came to unite. Here's what we read in verse 12. Remember, you were at one time, Gentiles, separated from Christ. Separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see that? That's how you were. But now in Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in the ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Now get this, that He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He can reconcile us both. That means Jew and Gentile together, reconciled together with one another. Christ's blood on the cross came to reconcile us to God. And as we're reconciled to God, we can be reconciled to one another. You realize your sin has created a separation between you and your God? And your only hope is if Christ came. If God took on flesh, became like you and became like I and lived the perfect life we could never live, He died as a substitute in our stead place for our sins so that He might unite us to God and as we'll look at next week, unite us to one another. 